give your attention now to the first 17 verses of Acts chapter 18, where we find the Apostle Paul in Corinth. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. Hear God's word. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy uh, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. uh, So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for by occupation. They were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled uh, by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was Next door uh, to the synagogue, then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in, in the night by a vision, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in the city, and he continued there a year and six months, therefore the word of God Uh, or or teaching, excuse me, the word of God among them. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names in your own Uh, Law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took uh, Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him uh, before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again uh, for your word. And we ask you that now, once again, by the preaching... Holy Spirit, you might illumine it uh, to the lives and to the understanding of your people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we find Paul uh, going about his second missionary journey, we find him now in Corinth. He had been previously in Athens, as we saw last time, and now he was in Corinth. I want to share with you a strange theory Uh, That has been put forward by some, uh, and I think that I may have even said it once myself from this pulpit a long time ago. I call it a strange theory now, so you know that I don't believe it anymore. But there has been uh, a thought that uh, Paul, in going uh, to Athens, uh, engaged in a bit of philosophy and apologetics. uh, And he was essentially demoralized by the time he got to Corinth. Weakness, fear, and trembling. Now, we'll come back to that. But he was demoralized. He was defeated. And he said, I'm never going to do that again. I am going to preach Christ and him crucified. And that's all I'm going to preach from now on. Uh, And so it represented, some have said, a change in his policy. Well, uh, at one time, that thought impressed me very much. 
uh, only because I don't think that Paul really was an apologist. He was a preacher, and we do see him engaging in a degree of apologetics in, in, in Athens. However, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's right. I think even as, uh, even as I say it, I think uh, we can all agree that it doesn't have the ring of plausibility. Paul was preaching Christ crucified wherever he was. And the reason he engaged in apologetics in Athens was because that was the need of the hour. But now we find him at Corinth. Let me say uh, a few things about the city of Corinth. It was uh, a very important city, much like Athens was. And soon we'll see him in Ephesus. Uh, And so really, those three prominent cities... uh, begin to dominate the narrative and the life of the ministry of Paul. A lot like Athens, it was a place um, that was full of wisdom and full of learning. You see this in what Paul says to them. He says uh, that, that, and he's speaking to Jews and to Greeks, he's saying the, the gospel of God is not according to the wisdom of man. Uh, but Paul knew he was up against the wisdom of man in Corinth, even as he was in Athens. But the greatest trial that he found there was not its wealth or its prominence or its learning. It was its immorality. Uh, Corinth was well known for its especially sexual immorality. And what we need to see and what Paul realized in going there was that everything he had to say to Corinth. It's a lot like what we find today when we're speaking to anyone who is an unbeliever. Everything that we have to say goes uh, up directly against what is held dear to those who make a practice of sin and who excuse it and those who are learned in doing so, those who are full of uh, pride and learning and sin. The gospel was a a direct affront on all these things. And so while in some sense we can imagine Paul confronting those things there, we saw him confronting the idolatry of Athens. We don't so much see him confronting much here in Corinth, but we do in his letters. And we have two of his his letters. We know he wrote more, but we have two of them. And that's what we find there. And so Paul is in the midst of this this great uh, campaign to visit the great cities, Athens, Corinth, soon Ephesus. And we find him spending considerable time, especially in Corinth and Ephesus. In fact, Luke tells us he'll be in Corinth for a year and a half. And then when you, when you add in Ephesus, just between those two cities, he spends five years. He's not spending a week or two then on the run, a week or two then on the run. That, that's kind of been how things have gone up to now. But suddenly we'll see that begins to change. And, uh, and the, the, the letters that he writes begin to make sense against the backdrop of the longish ministries that he spent in Corinth and in Ephesus. Well, as we look at this text, verses 1 through 17 of Acts chapter 18, we notice uh, a series of interesting persons and events, each with their own significance. And I want to quickly move through a few preliminary points, and then I want to stay with a few longer ones. The first thing we see in verses 2 and 3 after in verse 1, we're told that he came from Athens to Corinth, is that he comes across these two people, Aquila and Priscilla. These are people that we find mentioned in other letters. These are people who were important to Paul, people who came with him from Corinth then to Ephesus, and it seems they came from Rome to Corinth before that. And perhaps some have surmised they were among the founding members of that church. 
Uh, we later find them mentioned in Romans, uh, among other places, in chapter 16, verses 3 and 4. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. That in itself tells you something of the friendship that was formed as they were uh, partakers in some sense of the same ministry. And so we see throughout uh, Acts that Paul had many companions, and these two were among them. These two, uh, well, at least one of them, uh, at least the husband, uh, Aquila, was a Jew, perhaps Priscilla, we don't know, but they, uh, who became Christians, now uh, became friends of his. They shared not only, as one commentator says, the same faith, but also the same trade. They were fellow tent makers. That's how Paul met them. Now, it's interesting to notice the Apostle Paul doing this. In Corinth, he was, he was engaged in tent making. How did he find himself doing this? Well, one of the things that you need to know is that uh, in, in the Jewish school that he was raised in, uh, teachers of the law were encouraged to have their own trade. Uh, and, and, and that is what we find him doing here. He was able to uh, make his own living. Now, Paul's policy, in essence, was as he states in his epistles, that he didn't want to burden the churches. He didn't want to give any cause of, um, of scandal or offense where, where men might say, well, he has an ulterior motive. Paul is seeking to enrich himself. And so he said, I'm not going to take a living from this, even though it is my right. And it is the right of all who preach the gospel to make their living by the gospel. Nevertheless, he said, I won't, I won't make use of it. That's why he's doing that there. And, and it's, it's out of this, that, uh, this, this occurrence here that the whole idea of a tent-making ministry occurs. There are uh, dual-income ministers who have to make their living outside of the church. They're tent-makers. That's what we call them, sometimes by conviction, sometimes by necessity. But what we find him doing in Corinth, no surprise, alongside of that, as he was going about his tent-making ministry, was teaching in the synagogue, as he had occasion, he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and persuaded Jews and Greeks. What he was doing was preaching, obviously. He was expounding the scriptures. What he was doing, verse 5, he it tells us that he testified to Jews that Jesus is the Christ. He was proving, he was persuading from their own scriptures that Jesus was their Messiah. Again, Paul, whose heart's desire for his fellow countrymen that they might be saved, he was pleading with these Jews and these God-fearers in the synagogue, come to Christ and be saved, the Christ of Scripture. But the next thing we see in verse 5 is that Silas and Timothy rejoin him. And as they do so, I don't think it's in the text, uh, it isn't, but we know from other epistles, and it makes sense based on the narrative here, uh, that they, well, they bring good news of encouragement from what was going on in Thessalonica, but they also brought a gift. And as a result of that gift, Paul was able uh, to put aside his tent-making labors and to give himself fully and exclusively to the work of preaching. And that's why he says, uh, not only that he was preaching in verse 4, but when Saul, Silas and Timothy came, he was compelled by the Spirit to, to preach again. The indication is that he had a renewed ability now as a result of the gift which was brought to him. And you can find an account of this in other epistles, such as uh, it's either First or Second Corinthians and Philippians. 
Now, what you find next is a very dramatic scene in verse 6. Let me read that. Here he is preaching to them, and they opposed him and blasphemed. When they did this, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, the first thing we notice is that he seems to do this a lot. He says, uh, in essence, I've tried. I failed. I'm moving on. And there is, there is validity to that in evangelistic settings and ministry settings. Uh, and so here... The Apostle Paul is once again turning to the Gentiles. As we'll find out, he simply has to turn next door, and we'll get there in a moment. But the other thing that comes to mind as we read this uh, is the, the dramatic gesture that he employs as he does so, which we haven't seen before. This is the first time we've seen this. He shook his garments. You remember Jesus said something like that in Matthew chapter 10. Shake the dust off your feet. He was doing something like that. But then he says, your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean. Now, you, you remember, he speaks this way sometimes. He did so to the uh, Ephesian elders. Uh, and in other places, he, he does so as well. But what he's calling to mind is Ezekiel 33, the watchman. Now, who's the watchman on the tower? Well, the watchman on the tower isn't your average Christian. That's kind of become the popular uh, sentiment, but that's not true. The watchman on the tower is the preacher, and the preacher is the one who is tasked with warning the people. If you don't turn from your sins, you will perish in your sins, but if you, if you do turn from your sins, you will live, and you will prosper under the hand of God. And what the Lord says to the watchman on the tower is that if you do this, if you warn them, and they do not turn and they perish, your hands are free, they're washed of their blood. But if you do not warn them and they perish, as they perish, their blood is on your hands. You see, Paul was saying, my hands are clean. I have warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Turn to Christ, repent and be saved. And they would not do it. Is it right for a preacher ever to speak like this? You see, we, we, we're tempted to ask a question like that. Is it right for him ever to say, I don't know of his own congregation, that isn't what I mean, but in the, in the setting of evangelism where there is persistent unbelief, persistent repentance, Obviously, there must be. Well, he turns next door. He shakes the dust from his garments and his feet, and he, he tells them, if you will not be saved, then I will turn to the Gentiles. And he goes into the home of justice. Verse 7, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. How convenient it was as people uh, taking their former journey uh, to synagogue could now simply turn over to the home of justice. And that's what we find happening. Suddenly, Paul began to gather a new congregation uh, there. The first convert was, uh, if not justice, then Crispus. And we find him, uh, we find him in 1 Corinthians. We also possibly find justice if he is Gaius. And Paul says that he baptized these two men, though no others. We later read of baptisms, we wonder who did that. I'm not sure. At any rate, Paul, it seems, baptized both these men. Uh, Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. Already a remarkable conversion, the power of the gospel to save. And this follows the usual pattern. Not only he believes, but his whole household. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. Following that, many others too. Many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized, and so the congregation began to grow. Again, I ask, 
who baptized them, I'm not sure. Maybe you can tell me. Uh, Paul seems to glory in the fact that it wasn't him, uh, given their party spirit. Well, here is another instance you see of revival in this town. Many, many were being saved through the preaching of the gospel. Now, following this, you have another remarkable instance, and that is the the vision that Paul experiences. Verses uh, 9 and 10. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in the city. This was needed encouragement. And the effect that this had upon him was that we read in verse 11, he stayed a long time. He wasn't on the run any longer. Now he stayed uh, a year and a half. And what did he do there? Well, no surprise, teaching the word of God among them. He was established, we might say, as the pastor of this church, preaching among them. Well, I want to note, now, now I'm going to begin to stay with these, these points a little longer. The preaching of Paul is the next point. What we find, uh, we don't know much about his preaching, unlike Athens, uh, which we have a sample of in Acts uh, from, from this account. But we do from 1 Corinthians, where the apostle talks about the kind of preaching he engaged in. It was a preaching not uh, of, of human wisdom, but of divine power, he says. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Also, well, I could stay with that, but let me jump to uh, chapter 2. And, I, and this is especially important to note. I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not rest uh, in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The, The hallmark of Paul's preaching was that it was devoid of learning. And so there, there was a measure of contrast. And this is why that earlier theory I talked about has a measure of plausibility. There was a degree of human wisdom and learning. But, but here Paul says, Paul says uh, I, I'm going, when I preach to the Corinthians, I'm going to suppress that entirely. Entirely. In order that this contrast between divine wisdom and human wisdom would be highlighted to the highest possible extent. It was an affront to human wisdom. It was an affront to human sin. But do you notice that the Apostle Paul is also saying that this was apparent in himself. And this is something that he reflects upon in First and Second Corinthians. That we have this treasure in jars of clay. We are weakness. We are dust. The death of Christ is manifesting itself every day. How is it manifesting itself? In our weakness. The kind of thing that... Well, these Corinthians who were so proud and so noble were apt to despise. You see, Paul concedes it. He admits, I was afraid. You see, our Lord is saying to him, don't be afraid, Paul. Why did he have to encourage him like that? Because he was afraid. He was afraid. He was trembling. At this point, it had gone so badly so many times he wondered, what kind of trials await me in Corinth? I know what sort of people they are. I know that they are apt to reject the message violently. He was afraid. The Apostle Paul, remember, was just a man. 
like you and me, flesh and blood. He was an ordinary human being like you and me. And I doubt you would have had any more courage than he did in the face of so much persecution. He was on the run. It was natural to some extent that he should be afraid, weak and trembling. What kind of trials await me here, he thought to himself. And it was for this reason that our Lord, in saying to him, listen to me, this time it's going to be different. This time you're going to have a settled ministry there. And so ease your mind, Paul. You you understand why that was such a boost to him and such an encouragement. And so we find that as a result of this, he gives himself fully to the preaching. Verse 11. Well, I'm in 1 Corinthians still. Verse 11 of Acts chapter 18. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But in doing so, he didn't seek uh, suddenly to emphasize human power. No, he stuck uh, to his message. I don't want you to think for a moment that your salvation or God's power rests in any way upon my own strength or my own learning. It depends solely upon the power of God. So that was the kind of preaching he had. He gloried in the cross of Christ and to that extent he gloried in his own weakness. The next thing we see is the church that was established there through the preaching of Paul. As elsewhere, it had a familiar pattern. We see that a man is sent to preach and some believe the message and that they, along with their household, are baptized. Again and again, we notice this, the household baptism portions of Acts especially. And those homes or households of new believers make up the nucleus of the body of believers being formed. Now, Does that sound familiar? It should, because that is uh, the pattern which the church has always followed. Uh, It is made up of homes and of households. And does that mean, think about this and stay with this point for a moment, does that mean that some members had not yet believed? Almost certainly. Precisely what you find today, when the household is the basis of newly uh, formed churches, you will have baptize members of those families who are members of the church, yet who have not yet professed faith. Which is uh, what we find today in the case of covenant children who have not yet professed faith. We even find Paul, uh, in some measure, anticipating this in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says, well, what about if I have an unbelieving wife? What about the children? And Paul says, uh, from the standpoint of the church, uh, they, they are holy. They are holy. He is anticipating this problem. The next thing that I would say is that this was a church that Paul loved. This is something that comes out in his letters, and we get the sense uh, just from the fact that he spent so much time there that this was likely to be the case. But we should also say of the church that it was a church in great peril. We don't get the sense from Acts, but we do from both of the letters. Not so much by heresies as elsewhere as by immorality. It was immorality that threatened to destroy her. You would have thought wrongly if you did, but you might have hoped at least as a result of the preaching of the gospel and their being converted that they had fully put away their old ways, but they hadn't. You read the first and second Corinthian epistles and you see that it was immorality that was ravaging the church and threatening to destroy her. It was for that reason that the the apostle has to tell them, listen to me, I want you to understand that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And he's talking about sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 5. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You have to be very careful here. You're playing with fire. 
And your own souls and the churches are in great peril as a result of this. The sins of others may soon consume you if you will not deal with them. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, beloved. Those who practice the kinds of sins that you used to practice will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. You have many such statements in the epistles. He's saying, in essence, this is, this is no way for a Christian to behave. You've been bought with a price, he says in another place. Let your conduct show it. Show it with your bodies. Stop giving in to such immorality. But in that sense, you see, 1 Corinthians, well, and 2 Corinthians are familiar to us, aren't they? The picture that is painted there is all too familiar from the standpoint of the American church. We find a church not so much beset with heresies, yes, to some extent, but more than anything else, the thing that's emptying the church of her power and her life is the kind of immorality that you find. Flee from immorality, Paul would say, and so I say to the American church. The final thing we see with respect to the church that was formed there and Paul's ministry there was what I would say, or what I would call friends in high places. Gaius, or or, excuse me, Gallio. We read of uh, this little trial that occurs in verses 12 through 17. It doesn't at all go the way his opponents had hoped. It goes very much in his favor and to the favor of the Christians who were there. Let us notice again uh, the method of our adversaries. Our adversaries so often are are unable to win in the court of public opinion. And so what do they do? They say, well, we're going to stop them uh, from above. We're going to put an end to their teaching Uh, Through an edict or something like that. Very often they've succeeded. Well, that's what was occurring here. They were losing their grip on the people, these Jews, and so they seek through an edict of Gallio to put an end to Paul's ministry, even as they did to our Lord Jesus Christ. But what you notice uh, happens is the opposite. In fulfillment of Christ's words to Paul saying, you're going to be safe here. You're going to have a settled ministry here. They utterly and miserably fail. Gallio says, I have no interest in prosecuting this. Uh, And we even see that some of them get beat up instead of Paul and his friends. Well, one of the things uh, that uh, if you read any commentator, they will note is how helpful this was to the spread of Christianity in the Roman Empire. This was a prominent city. And for Gallio to make such a uh, pronouncement, in essence, uh, gave uh, Christianity the same protection that uh, Judaism did as one of the protected and official religions. And it carried a kind of precedent which went on for some time. Uh, And so this was very significant, uh, though it was not to last. What I would like to note first about this is that this has often been the case, that the church has been helped by friends in high places. We see how this was true here. Certainly it was true in the Reformation. Historians often note that one of the main reasons that Luther was not another John Huss or Jan Huss was primarily due to the protection of Frederick, elector of Saxony. You see, they preached the same message One was burned at the stake, at least I think he was, Jan Hus, and 
The other man was thriving to the end. In fact, in, on some level, if you've ever read anything about Luther, you find that he, he, he almost resented the fact that he wasn't martyred for the gospel, but he was so well protected that no one could get to him. He had friends in high places. And do you see how God used that to bring about the Reformation? He used the preaching of Luther, but under the protection of Frederick. It's incredible to see that. Frederick was known as Luther's protector. Now, what's interesting about Frederick is that he was not convinced that Luther was right. He was not converted by Luther's message. And yet he felt constrained, much like Gallio here, to protect his citizen nonetheless. It's an amazing story. Now, as we come to the story here and we look at Gallio, we see what happens is not so much that Gallio becomes a Christian himself, though, if we're to think of what Paul says in a later instance, certainly he would have aimed at that, too. I mean, Paul would have aimed at that. He would have aimed at Gallio's conversion. Well, it wasn't that Gallio became a Christian. That isn't how this turned in the favor of the church, but simply that he was not interested in impeding the progress of Christianity. And by that alone, he gave it a kind of imperial approval that protected Christians for some time. God was now protecting the church. Let me say it again through friends in high places. And this is something that I would suggest is important for us to grasp as Christian people. When Christ was encouraging Paul, he was helping him to see that all would be well in that city, that no one would harm him, and that this included, he might not have realized it, but he, surely he did when it was all said and done, that this included those in authority. Christ was saying, even they are under my charge, and I will enlist them to help you and to protect you. And so let us see this. What occurs in verses 12 through 17 is more than a bit of generosity on the part of Gallio. Or more than a bit of historical coincidence in the case of Frederick in his relationship to Luther, where, whereas Jan Hus had nothing of the sort. No, it's more than that. It's more than a coincidence. But it was the direct result of Christ himself holding sway over the hearts of men, which includes those in authority. And my point is that he often does this. He's done it many times before, and he can do so again. What he does, I'm saying, if he does not convert the magistrate, which he doesn't always do, he didn't do so here, he gives the magistrate a favorable disposition to the church, and this is to her great benefit. Now, ideally, the man is converted. He's a Christian himself. The so-called Christian magistrate is the ideal. But it's not at all necessary from the standpoint of what I'm saying. It's enough merely that in the language of our confession, chapter 23, section 3, as nursing fathers, it is the duty of the civil magistrate to protect the church of our common Lord without giving preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the free, full, an unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred function without violence or danger. It's enough, really, the confession is saying, and I'm in full agreement, it's enough merely that the magistrate views himself as a nursing father and as a protector. And if he does that, it will be to the benefit 
of the church. You see, the danger is that the magistrate, if he's a little too zealous in this, he begins to meddle in the affairs of the church. He ought not to do that. He's not a minister. But he ought to protect her. And the reason that this is able to happen, the reason that this occurs here, is under the superintendence of Jesus Christ. And it was in this free exercise of religion, you might call it, that Christianity in Corinth was able to flourish. Now, the reason is, if you think of it, is that Christianity, if not suppressed by artificial means, is obviously superior to these other religions. If you just give Christianity a chance to compete with Judaism, Christianity will win. Judaism, Islam, you you name it, secularism, these ideas, these uh, system of ideas cannot compete with Christianity. And our opponents know this, which is why they always seek artificial means to suppress it. Do you remember how it was said of Jesus that the common people heard him gladly? That's the regular folks. They enjoyed what he had to say. It's true, the learned and the wise in Israel, just as in Corinth, they despised and they resented everything that he did and everything that he said. Oh, but the common people, here was a message for them. And so Christianity has always been. But the rulers, angered by this, losing their grip on the people, well, you know what they did to Jesus. And they sought the same to do the same with the Apostle Paul, to put out the religion, to put an end to it, by official edict from the government. So the first thing I'm saying about friends in high places is is that it's often to the benefit of the church. But let me say something else, that the opposite is also true. Thank God that Christianity does not depend upon official approval to thrive. It is often the case that the more she is hated, the more she is Suppressed by those in authority and by the popular culture, the more she thrives in the long run. Let us acknowledge our opponents are often able to secure a partial temporary victory. But in the long run, they always outwit themselves. The more Christianity is suppressed, the more it spreads. And it happens like this. It is uh, as uh, as trials as by trials, rather, that the reality is seen. Look especially to the martyrs holding steadfastly uh, to the end their confession. The martyrs have always become the best testimony of the reality of the, uh, of the Christian message. You remember, for instance, that centurion, as he beheld Jesus on the cross, and he said, truly, you are the Son of God. Well, you could say, you see, I'm saying it was his death that was his testimony. And that's often been the case. If you look to the Reformation, for instance, you go back and you can explain it from the standpoint of Frederick. Well, you can also explain it from the standpoint of those, unlike Luther, who gave their life for the gospel. And the amazing thing was that by their death, the light of the gospel was shining more brightly than by their lives. The reality of the message suddenly becomes plain. The common people see, look at this man, even in the face of death, even in the face of flames that surround him and engulf him. His faith is steadfast. It is sure there must be something to it. 
You see, God can use that, and he does. But not only that, we must also see the same Lord who told Paul, in this case, no one would, ca- would harm him, later told him the opposite. But you see, it's the same Lord in both cases. The same Lord who says, Paul, I'm going to protect you, who later says, Paul, you will go bound to Rome. And so let us see he is able to accomplish his will in either case, whether he gives us nursing, nursing fathers, friends in high places, so to speak, or if he gives us raging opponents, let us see his will will be accomplished in either case and by either means. And this is something that sets Christianity apart from other religions. It doesn't need the government. It doesn't need the culture. It's unlike Islam or other religions in this regard. It can thrive very well in any setting. And very often it thrives best in conditions you wouldn't expect it would. And yet that in itself underscores the very power of its appeal. That in human weakness, as Paul says, God's power is made apparent. And so the whole message of the cross, a spectacle of human weakness and of its preaching as well, is lived out in the lives of those who are saved by its message. So often what I'm saying is you see by the sufferings of the saints. That the glory of the gospel appears as they are made along with Christ to bear their cross. And as they bear their cross, well, they become like Paul who could say, let me read it again uh, to these Corinthians. He says, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be uh, should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, as we look at what happened here in Corinth, we need to ask ourselves the same question. And that is, well, what is it that we are pinning our faith upon? Are we like those who see uh, and uh, say that Christianity can only be potent when it is a cultural force, when it holds sway, uh, let us say, in the halls of Congress? And if that doesn't happen, well, then Christianity in this country doesn't stand a chance. Or are we those who say, you know, even if that doesn't happen, there's still hope for us? Are we those who say with Paul, I'm content to be regarded as weak and foolish if by this means your faith would rest not on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God? And even if we should be, at least for the time being, a small, a despised, a persecuted minority in this country, well, still I see ample opportunity for the power of God to be on display in me, even as it was in Christ and in Paul. Do you understand? Here was Paul's message to the Corinthians, and it's my message to you this evening as I close. Do you understand that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. Here was a message for ancient Corinth. Equally, it is a message for us. Amen. And let us stand together and uh, sing this time. uh, I've got it right. uh, 159, the closing hymn in the evening. Hymn 159.